started getting into like autocrossing and track racing, at least on the on the fringe level. HPD stuff. Yep. And found out you could rent a racetrack. So we, we, we pulled all of our money together, all of the friends, you know, as a part of this group. And there's like 10 of us that were. We, we like all brought a sack of nickels and then rented the racetrack on a Monday. We encounter everything and it's it's not for the faint of heart, but we just love the challenge. It's good to try different things because if you only drive Formula One cars, you get a bit stuck. You, you always drive the same thing. It's good, I think, to challenge yourself to try and learn different things. This is Honda Stories, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes to hear about some of the most exciting things Honda has been a part of over the last 60 years. So join me, Bradley Hasemeyer, and let's hear about the stories behind the Honda badge. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Bradley Hasemeyer. Welcome to my CRV. (laughs) I say that because that's where I'm coming to you from. That's where we're recording the podcast. It's actually very quiet in here. Uh, There's plenty of room. The seats are very comfortable. So I'm not complaining. This is a pretty sweet setup. Now, just based on the opening of the show alone, you know today we are talking all things motorsports. We're going to be working our way up the ladder, starting with grassroots racing and the origins of grid life followed by the Baja 1000 and the excitement of off-road racing in a truck. And then finally, we'll hear from two world champion racers from both Formula One and the Indy 500 and how Honda has really established their presence at every level of racing. Now, of course, if you are familiar with motorsports at all, you realize the people who are in it, they do it because they love it. It is a passion for them. I mean, sure, you've got the upper echelon, the very top, who are making some serious cash doing this, have a lifestyle that looks totally enviable. But for everybody else, all the regular people, the grassroots folks like myself, Honda has a very exciting announcement. They're going to be launching a product for grassroots racing like you've never seen before. And we've got Andrew Salzano from Honda here to tell us a little bit more about the new crate engine. My name's Andrew Salzano. I'm an engineer at Honda Performance Development in our commercial programs group. And a crate engine, it's really a, a way to take an engine from one car and put it in another or an engine off the shelf and put it in something else that you want to put it in and have it run kind of standalone. That's been a popular thing with the domestics for so long. And this is actually the first Honda crate engine that will sell that has uh, a turnkey solution for it so that you can put some kind of halo type engine in a car that you feel deserves it. So we're really excited to bring this to the market. Everyone saw that we have this engine out of the Honda Civic Type R that we're currently racing in. And it's really kind of a no brainer. Let's, let's take this engine that's come to the U S for the first time and make it to where people can put it in other race cars and enjoy it like we have with the other ones. And I know, of course, you're going to be making a lot of people happy, including Chris and Adam from Gridlife. Guys, thank you so much for being a part of this. You guys are a pretty big deal. Why don't you go ahead and just tell us who you are, what you do for Gridlife, and how Honda Performance Development is so closely connected to Gridlife. I'm Chris Stewart, director and founder of Gridlife. I'm Adam Jabay. I'm the motorsports director and the co-founder of Gridlife. Honda and HPD is integrated into the story of grid life because our passions kind of lie with with that particular brand right like i've had every vehicle i've ever owned is a honda and then 
this particular project enabled by the crate motor from HPD is my second car. You know, it, it was a car that I bought when I was young that I've held on to. So it's really, really cool that there's a company factory that's recognizing the type of enthusiasts that we are, right. you know, and the community that we come from and making it easy, you know, and enabling these types of projects to happen. Now, talk a little bit about what Grid Life is, because you guys met out of a love of engine swapping and, and components, but Grid Life has really evolved into, I mean, I, I would say kind of a cultural movement in the automotive world. People love you guys. So tell us a little bit about what Grid Life is. Grid Life is basically the culmination of us creating the event that we want to attend based off of the type of car culture that we're into. But I mean, the evolution of it, you know, a quick version of the story is we were Honda enthusiasts. We started running this this parking lot meet called the West Michigan Honda Meet. I think the first one was in 2000, 2001, 2002. And then we started getting into like autocrossing and track racing, at least on the, on the fringe level. And HPD stuff. Yep. And found out you could rent a racetrack. So we, we, we pulled all of our money together, all of the friends, you know, as a part of this group. And there's like 10 of us that were. We, we like all brought a sack of nickels and then rented the racetrack on a Monday. Yeah. And this was the, the, the West Michigan Honda meet. And then we kind of stumbled upon a little bit of a cultural movement amongst like-minded, younger enthusiasts that like wanted to get into motorsports but like didn't really feel like they had an, had an outlet, right? At that time, 2004, you had a few different groups running HPDEs, but like track day culture was not what it is it was, today. Yeah, it was very spread thin. It was and one it or was, two events. Yeah, it was Porsche clubs and BMW clubs. And here we are showing up with, with CRXs and, yeah. and, and things to like those events. And not that we weren't, you know, not that it was a hostile environment by any means, but, you know, you always kind of want to be with your tribe. And we did it like for three years on a Monday. And then the one Monday fell on like, July 5th. And that event was big, big for us. It was like a thousand people yeah, came. We had people watching, you know, us on the racetrack. And then the next year we moved it over to a two day event. And that's when like the cultural roots like really started to develop. And so Grid Life was really like about smashing all the things that, that I was into. And then all these like disparate pieces of, of car culture and trying to give them equal footing, like centered around motorsports. So motorsports at the heart. And then like kind of glue that whole thing around like a festival experience. You know, I think our, our kind of goal is to like expose people to like motorsports culture and be like, hey, if you want to like take another step and start utilizing your car or like get into driving, mm -hmm. this is here. What I see is is you guys are examples of of going from grassroots to now, like like becoming the moderators and the ushers for others to bring them into this kind of kind of a grassroots movement and and how important to that concept is the idea of having a crate engine like the the plug and play the grab and go versus what you guys had to do before which was essentially buying a car bringing it here stripping out the engine and now you have another car to stick it in how important is that I think from like a builder's perspective we try to like make things as plug and play as possible within our events it's now enabling that to happen from a builder's perspective yeah having that type of availability and that type of a plug and play like really really mirrors and marries well with what we consider automotive enthusiasts and formerly this was like not a thing that like ever really happened in the sport compact or import style of car culture it's big in the v8 and domestic world like it has been forever but like it's not a thing in the import world and uh, i think that's super exciting to see that just as an option now, explain the idea of time attack when it comes to racing. This is a major part of what you guys do, right? 
So our events basically have on track, there is there's HPDE, which is high performance drivers education. Basically, we have uh, beginner, intermediate and advanced groups. It's a track day. Uh, it's a track day. And then also we have uh, typically it's a 50 to 100 car field of time attack and separated into five major classes. That's basically drivers up against themselves. They're, they're running against the clock and they're trying to beat their best time. As far as classing and stuff goes, I mean, there's a class for bone stock Honda Fits all the way up to, you know, the Wild Unlimited class, which, you know, wings the size of your kitchen table. Anything and everything can kind of find a place in Time Attack. And then we also have our newest uh, piece of competition, which is Grid Life Touring Cup, which is a single class of, uh, of wheel-to-wheel racing. A lot of Honda-powered vehicles. A lot of Honda-powered vehicles. <laughs> Even with that, like talking about like the true hybrid swaps, right? So like GLTC is, it's a wheel to wheel, like traditional racing first across the finish line wins. And I think almost all of the pointy end of the field, you know, those leading the pack are are powered by Honda, whether it's a Miata or a Civic. But yeah, we do see Honda power kind of rising to the top. In some capacity, it's like available, you know, from Honda Direct, it's it's super, super cool. Yeah, I I would love to see more of the, the crate engine program from Honda. Huh, Andrew? Huh? You heard it right there. I know a lot of people are wondering right now, just like the Grid Life guys. Okay, I want to get a crate engine. When can I get my hands on one? These engines and the controls packages are going to be available late spring 2021, but it's going to be very limited. We're only going to release 93 of these things. Very limited edition, really to celebrate all the success we've had with this engine and the various race championships around the globe. We're hoping it's a special addition to somebody else's car and they can really feel the performance from this engine. All right, Gridlife guys, how excited is your crew and your followers, your fans? Only 93 are going to be out there. They're going to sell like hotcakes. Do you see your crew picking some of these up? I think we'll see a few for sure. Yeah, thinking about like all of the, the, the people who have moved over and like are looking at Honda power plants in general across a wide range of vehicles. I think that this is going to be a very, very exciting news to our community for sure. All right, so definitely exciting news for the grassroots community. But now we're going to shift gears a little bit and move to off-road endurance racing. Now, the biggest racing in this series is the Baja 1000. It starts in the Baja Peninsula in California, and it runs all the way down into Mexico. Now, I've been lucky enough to drive part of this route before, And I got to say, I was exhausted after only about 100 miles. These guys are driving 1,000 miles in stripped-down, high-speed trucks meant for taking on jumps and sand and rocks and just about anything Mexico can throw at it, which, from experience, is quite a lot. And Jeff Proctor, four-time Baja 1000-class champion, told us some stories from behind the scenes into even how to prepare for this race and why he and his co-driver keep cash in their onboard toolbox. My name is Jeff Proctor. I'm the primary driver of the Honda Baja Ridgeline and team principal of Honda Off-Road Racing. What have you done racing-wise? How did you get into racing? My racing career started actually in college. I was a college baseball player and I had a career-ending shoulder injury and I always had a passion for motorsports. And so like most kids grow up with a motorcycle, I did not, but I was passionate about it. And so I started actually racing motorcycles at 18 while I was a freshman in college and kind of self-taught myself. Raced local Southern California motocross for some time throughout my 20s. And that 
kind of transitioned into desert racing where I learned the endurance side of the sport, anything from 300 miles or longer. From that, I raced a Honda in endurance racing and kind of taught myself the sport and volunteered on a lot of different race teams to kind of just learn and acquire knowledge. And I ended up winning a best in the desert championship on two wheels in 2012. And from there, started my four-wheel career. I think it was mainly fueled by passion for motorsport. And yeah, here I am. I A lot of people consider what I did kind of going through the ladder system of off-road motorsport. Looking back, there was a lot of benefits from going through the ladders of the sport to get to where I am now. All right, let's get back to your racing career here. And and specifically, you know, when people think of racing, if you just went up to a random person, you said, tell me about you know, car racing, I think they would mostly think of like the open wheel F1, IndyCar type, these kinds of vehicles. But as I've gotten to know motorsports more, I've learned of so many different leagues and places to race. You are racing in the desert and not just like any desert. I mean, where you guys are driving is insane. So were you excited to get into this series? Were you a bit trepidatious, you know, like kind of like drive it like you have something to lose? Like I've got a family. I think I'm not going to hit 80 on this wallop. <laughs> we certainly hit more than 80. That's for sure. You know, off-road motorsports presents so many challenges. And I think like many drivers in motorsports, we're always up for a challenge. And, you know, you can take the Baja 1000, for example, and it's basically a 24-hour train wreck. You're overcoming obstacle after challenge after challenge. And it's, it's really a test, not just physically, but mentally, to be able to focus for that long through a myriad of different elements and some of the, the harshest terrain on the planet we encounter. Much like you said, you know, in, in a Baja 1000, we'll race down along the coast, we'll be in sand, we'll be in the worst silt in the world that is like talcum powder that consumes every part of your race truck and your body. We can be going through water crossings. This may sound gross, but in Mexico, sometimes a water crossing may be a sewage crossing. We encounter everything, and it's it's not for the faint of heart, but we just love the challenge, and there's so much satisfaction when we can overcome all of these obstacles in a 24-hour train wreck of a period and find this Honda Ridgeline you know, at the finish line taking the checkered flag. It's just really hard to describe the feeling for the entire team to have that kind of an accomplishment. I had a chance to uh, to do some like part of the 1000 in the kind of the buggies, the big wheel travel and the buggies, the, the open wheel ones. And I was just amazed at how many things you encounter in such a short stint. First off, it's it's kind of this this weird out of body experience where all of a sudden you're going 90 miles an hour in the desert and then you're going two miles an hour crawling over rocks and then you're going 50 like through the silt. How does the Baja Ridgeline truck specifically, how is it custom built other than that, the travel, the Fox shocks, the 30 in the back and 24 in the front? How else has it been custom made for this race? Yeah, so it's a complete tubular chassis to save weight that's powered by a 3.5 liter Honda engine. 
it's very unique to off-road with a six-speed sequential gearbox. It's got sand ramps. It's got spare tires. There's redundancy in alternators. It's designed for field repairs, so we can do a field repair in the middle of nowhere. It's completely set up for survival in the most remote parts of any type of endurance racing. And it is a very, very tough, tough truck. One of the most important components, obviously, is the engine. And that three and a half liter V6 is a direct carryover. How important is that to building up the ridgeline as a a valuable truck on the road? Yeah, I'd love to share with people that we're racing with the same exact 3.5 liter block that is found in the Ridgeline Pilot Passport and Odyssey minivan. These engines are so tough that we're using basically the stock components. And then, of course, Honda Performance Development builds it into a race engine with a race plenum and it's twin turboed. But the bones of the engine are exactly what the consumer is buying off the showroom floor. I can't even begin to explain the amount of durability testing that Honda does behind the scenes for production cars and for their racing development. I mean, this engine has spent hours and hours and hours on the dyno being proven to see what can break. And then we take it down to Mexico, put it through the harshest environment for 24 hours straight, and the engine's perfect by the time we get to the finish line. It's just really a testament to the amount of development that Honda puts into their engines. I know you get this question all the time, but what are some of the craziest things you've encountered? Just when you think you've had the craziest story in Mexico, it gets one up the following year. One story that comes to mind is we're, we're racing down the Pacific coast in Baja, California, into a small farming town called Camelu. The course goes through farmland and there's gates that get opened that farmers allow the sanctioning body to, to race through. And we're racing at least 85 to 95 miles an hour through this farmland. And it's like a wide open area. And off in the distance, we see this like crowd of spectators about two miles away. And as we get up close, we see that the course kind of drops down into this little valley that you can't see from where we're at now. And then it kind of does a little jog left, jog right. So. We're coming up at a high rate of speed over this crest. And as we come over this crest at a high rate of speed, we drop down into this gully. The local farmer had rerouted a three inch diameter irrigation pipe into this gully and completely flooded out this this area of the course. And so hence why there was all these spectators there. Needless to say, I come over this crest and we get buried up to our chassis. We've got to be in four foot deep of like the nastiest, like farmland, mud, maybe maybe some, you know, cow patty sewage. We're not sure what we're stuck in, but we're stuck up to the chassis. So my navigator, Evan, he hops out of the truck instantly up to his knees in whatever it is. And sure enough, the local farmer comes around the corner in a brand new John Deere and he motions with his hands that it's going to cost you $100. So he intentionally wanted everybody to yeah. get stuck so he could make $100 per pullout. It's just part of racing in Mexico. We carry pesos on us. So we give him $100. He backs his brand new John Deere down into this gully, yanks it out, no problem. 
navigator puts his helmet on the seat and he says, okay, we're out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna run through this gully. I'm gonna scout a line for you. He's gonna make hand motions to me up on the other side of the bluff. And then I'm gonna follow his line through. So he's gonna walk the line for me. So I'm up, back up with all the spectators. They're surrounding the truck. Evan is up on the other bluff. He motions, this is your line, this is your line, this is your line. So I take off and I'm in second gear, full throttle, and I come down into the race groove, and then I need to pop out of the race groove and take this other line through the bushes. Well, as I start to pop the truck out of the race groove, the tires slide because of the mud back into the groove and send me barrel rolling by myself, and I land upside down back in the, the mud puddle. <laughs> now I'm upside down in the mud puddle. I crawl, I, I unbelt, I crawl out. The fans swarm the truck. It's absolute chaos. Here comes the John Deere backing down the, the thing. Another $100 later, he flips us over really quickly, pulls us back out up onto the bluff. And by that time, our chase crews had heard over the radio where we were at because we were communicating with them. So we had our crew there to help us make a couple repairs on the truck that got damaged in the rollover. And within, I'd say 20 minutes, we were back into the race and back on the course and out of the mayhem. And we actually were able to finish that race. But nonetheless, that's just a small example of the 24-hour train wreck that can <laughs> be the Baja 1000. Well, that is an absolutely amazing story. I feel honored that you would share it. So what does the future hold for off-road racing for you and for the Baja Ridgeline? I think the future is extremely bright. Off-road racing is a sport that continues to grow in popularity. And we're launching a new MMC Ridgeline that comes out at the beginning of January or February that we're really excited to be a part of. I think in the future, you'll see us racing an all-electric if not a hybrid off-road truck or SUV in Ooh. endurance racing. That's where motorsports is going. That's where manufacturers are going, especially Honda with their electrification plan. And I think that's where you're going to see off-road motorsports go. I hope that we can be the first team to race an all-electric off-road vehicle competitively down in Mexico. I think it would be... Uh, really a, a revolutionary type of a, an effort. Now, when Jeff was telling me that story about the tractor, I was on the edge of my seat. When the tractor was around the second time, that <laughs> I lost it. I thought that was so funny. All right, so today we've heard stories about grassroots racing. We've talked about off-road racing, and now arguably the pinnacle of race technology, Formula One and IndyCar. In partnership with Red Bull Racing, we were able to bring together championship F1 driver Max Verstappen and two-time Indy 500 winner Takuma Sato for an exclusive conversation. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to be there, but we did have help from F1 journalist Chris Medlin to dig deeper into the stories that make these guys exceptional drivers, their shared history, and where the future of racing is headed. Congratulations on the Indy 500 victory a few weeks ago. Thank you so much. How was that to win that again? 
Well, it's just amazing feeling, you know, not just once, but twice. And, you know, selfishly, of course, you, you feel just an amazing feeling. But uh, this win was uh, something uh, perfectly excluded from the uh, back in eight years ago, which I couldn't deliver for this team for the winning. And uh, finally, I was able to deliver it. And then having a, just a great celebration with the team, it is just nothing like it. Unfortunately, this year, of course, it's a pandemic. We didn't have any spectator, usually here 300,000 people, but, you know, still, I think, knowing that millions of people watching through the television. So Indy 500 is just something very, very special event for us. Obviously, you raced in Formula One and we'll have a chat about your, your history with the sports in a little bit. Max, do you follow any of the Indy races? I was watching the Indy 500, yeah. It was very cool to watch. It's interesting to see the strategies and um, I don't know how close Takuma was with the fuel, but it looked, it was pretty much on on the limit but it's very nice and impressive what, what the guys do around there so you guys are both obviously connected through honda and you met at the japanese grand prix last year did you hit it off straight away yeah we went quite well and before heading to the suzuka we actually had a kind of a little event internally at honda rnd in tochigi he drove current formula one car and i drove like uh, something very old, you know, 60s and 70s uh, from Rwanka's uh, Honda RA272. That was very, very special. We didn't swap the car, but Max had a, a little taste of how the car looked like and much older than his age. So it was, it, was, uh, it was fun. How was it to drive that car, Max? It looked incredible. I mean, it's iconic, isn't it? Yeah, it was uh, very different to what I was used to. I think uh, one of the first times, of course, apart from driving a road car, but like it was a manual, you know, so you had to use the clutch. And I was... A bit different, but I, I really enjoyed it. It's not very often that you get an opportunity to drive a car like that. I did feel a bit big in the car, a bit tall, but you know, it was. I was happy that I could fit in the car. Of course, you don't drive the car to the limit, but uh, yeah, it's very different, very low grip. The car is moving around a bit more. That's what you expect when uh, you know the technology is like 40, 50 years apart. And Takuma, how did you find it? I found it uh, very interesting. For me, it's a print of a space, you know, no doubt. <laughs> Believe it or not, there is no seat belt in the back in days. How cannot imagine how the guys actually driving on the limit go through the Spa Francorch and Nürburgring on top of the hill, just hold your body, it's just pounding around all over the place. Imagine the cars go through there without seat belt, but still achieving hundred some miles per hour. It is just amazing. But Honda correction hole, it is always uh, very impressed me because just all the single parts, like Max said, you know, 45, 50 years old, the part, they polish it and they, the alignment was just perfect. It's just a masterpiece of engine and the gearbox and you feel the car, so much dedication of it. Let's have a quick chat about how you both started in racing. Max, we had you and your dad on the podcast a few weeks ago chatting about the dedication that it took traveling all around Europe to various races in your karting career. That's where you started, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I started when I was four, four and a half. My whole life, I saw um, already go-karts from the beginning, racing cars. So that's where, what I wanted to do. Was it the same for you growing up, Takuma? How did you get involved right at the very beginning of your career? Quite a bit different. I always jealous for how Max the environment was, and I wish I had, but it's okay. So my parents had no idea for the racing whatsoever. So uh, basically, uh, I was crazy about cars, though, you know, when I was small, but then I know nothing about racing. So all I had was just a basic metal frame with two wheels and a push bike. So I was always pedaling up until 19 years old. So when I was 20, I went to the Suzuka Racing School which had uh, age restriction. So you had to be under 20 years old. So imagine for me, it was the last and the only chance to involve any racing at that time. So I asked my parents, give me a chance, give me a shot. And then that's how I started. So 
Yeah, I might start racing really late, but I'm still passionate today simply because it's only 20 years gone past. And I think probably the uh, same experience as Max when he raced in four years old, you are. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> yeah. no, it's a pretty similar experience of the time being in, in a racing. So what memories do you have of your Formula One career? What's, what's the highlight for you? Well, first of all, I think that's just my first experience for the any racing. It was back in 1987 when I was 10. I went to the Suzuka. So that was the first Japanese Grand Prix held in Suzuka. So that memory was just like, for me, it's just a fresh and fresh. Since then, my dream was just to become the race car driver. And then after 10 years passed, like I said, I went to the, to the racing school. So my first really taste was during the British Formula 3 day. So after my first Macau, so Eddie Jordan gave me a phone call and gave me an opportunity driving his Formula 1 car in Jerez. So that was just before the Christmas time. So for me, it was just unbelievable Christmas present. Uh, so I, I still remember just a Honda V10 was screaming at 18,000 RPM. And that was just amazing, amazing experience for me. How did you find your transition to IndyCar after Formula 1? It is uh, quite a bit different animal, as you can imagine. It looks similar, but it's totally different. But I was okay. I was just uh, so, how can I say, hungry for the new challenge. Max, have you had an opportunity to drive an Indy car? Only on the, the simulator. All <laughs> oh, right. How does it compare? <laughs> but, uh, well, it just, yeah, like, like the Kuma said, it's, it's different, but it's fun. I mean, I enjoy driving a lot of different things. It's not that I only enjoy driving Formula One cars. You know, I also enjoy driving GT cars. It's good to try different things because if you only drive Formula One cars, you get a bit stuck. You, you always drive the same thing. It's good, I think, to challenge yourself, to try and learn different things. I think it will only make you a better driver. So, of course, I know that the simulator is not like the real thing, but it's a great first impression and uh, it's a lot of fun to drive already on, on the simulator. Would you like to have a go in the real thing at some stage? Yeah, but I'm a little bit against ovals. I mean, I enjoy probably the road courses, but I prefer to do the ovals just on, on the simulator. <laughs> no, fair enough. Now, we can't have you both on without having a quick chat about the F1 podium experience. Takuma, you experienced it with BAR in 2004. What was it like? It was just a fantastic feeling. So much effort, so much dedication for every single piece of the process. It was just a truly special moment. Max, it's a moment that fans look forward to. Is it something you still enjoy, what, stepping up onto, the, onto those steps? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's the most enjoyable, of course, uh, the top step, but you also have to be realistic if it's possible or, or not. You know, sometimes I'm also happy when I'm second or third, just because you know that you got the best out of it, and you know the other team or whatever is just too dominant to beat. So you just have to appreciate the podium. I want to round off very quickly. You both know your Honda engines, of course, but we want to find out how well you know them. We also finished with a little game of Honda Bingo. Here is the first engine. What do we reckon? That must be Takuma's car engine at the moment. Takuma, do you agree? I reckon that's the current power unit. I think it's an IndyCar. There's disagreement here. Gentlemen, what are we going for? Is it Formula One or is it IndyCar? Well, I remember from when we go off throttle in F1, you, our engine makes more of a, a noise. The downshift record, well, reminds me more of an IndyCar, but... Yeah, probably. I don't. Maybe you're right. Maybe that's my engine. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so, your IndyCar engine. You're going for IndyCar. It is a Formula One car. What? Yeah. Okay, number two. Oh, 
It's a different engine nose. That's motorcycle, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, we'll give you that. Well done, guys. That's MotoGP. Um, yeah, yeah. The third nice. engine. Let's have a listen to that. Is that like the Super GT or something? It's a lot of uh, like a back crash and the mechanical noise and from the gearbox. It feels like GT car. <laughs> well, that yeah. is an Indy car. It's an Indy car. By the hell. <laughs> nah, what? Really? Uh... Yeah. I didn't say they were going to be easy. Hey, who knows? Honda Bingo could actually be a really fun game. All right. Well, there you go. Those are all the Honda stories we have for you today. Thanks for going behind the badge with us. And like always, if you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to leave us a review and tell your friends. We've got a lot more coming your way, so make sure you subscribe. And if you have your own Honda story we need to know about, tag us on social using hashtag Honda Stories, and you could be on the show. I'm Bradley Hasemeyer. Have a great week, and we'll see you on the road. <laughs>